for all beings, wisdom, compassion, non-clinging awareness. And I will awaken speedily for the sake of all beings. Good. So uh, today, uh, some more um, uh, teaching on mindfulness, sustaining mindfulness, and the importance of mindfulness. Kind of a wrap-up. Uh, the uh, ultimate, ultimate discovery of the, of the uh, reef ecology. But uh, before I do that, uh, do you have any, uh, any questions that might have come from, uh, from yesterday or the day before? You might, you might not. Anything, anything you'd like to ask? The last class, I might not see you for uh, months or, or even years. Yes. What a statement. Tell me something in the universe that is not illusory. Give me one thing in the universe that isn't illusory. So illusion is about as direct as you can get recognize the illusory nature of phenomena and you have the you have the essence of mind. So when you say uh, meditate on a hollow body, your own being is being hollow, that's the illusory nature of the body experience. You'll come to that experience in the meditation of Anapanasati, uh, of watching the breath, in any kind of classic insight meditation where you're watching phenomena, you will experience hollow body. They use a different term. They call it cessation of sensory phenomena. But the experience will be the same. You'll feel uh, the body vanish, a shell of a body, a, a uh, membrane of a body, like the casing of a parrotfish at night. And uh, that experience of a, of a femoral body, a body like a bubble, uh, if you have insight, if you have a mind that's asking questions, instead of being a cool experience, you recognize, I can't find that body because maybe there was never a body that's real, ultimately real, to find. So, so this is the same thing. So uh, as I said to somebody yesterday, I'm often asked in discussions or classes about Yidam practice or guru yoga or the, the deity yoga practice, people say, yeah, but, but are they real? And it's a lovely question because I go, well, you're not either. That's the whole point. They, and actually, as it turns out, by traditional teachings of great yogis, great masters of yoga, especially the Tibetans, um, some of the great um, called mountain yogis, they declare actually that's the reality. Those deity, those, those, that level of Buddha reality is the only reality. All the rest is a construction of mind. It's interesting. So people are going, well, wait a minute. You know, I'm meditating on Samanta Bhadra. I'm meditating being Dorji Palma. I'm meditating being Chenrezig. These aren't really real. They're made up by Indians or they're, you know, they're, they're Indian constructs. But what are you? 
Name one thing that isn't a construct, isn't a fabrication of mind. Can't find it. So this is also a method of analysis that is used in different schools for coming to this uh, feel that uh, it's all illusorily constructed by mind by simply going around and going, tell, you know, looking what actually is real. And then thinking about it. Okay, well, my skin is real. That's, that's skin. Well, what happens when you look at single cells of skin? Well, those are cells. Where'd the skin go? Well, the skin's not there anymore. There's cells. Are the cells the same as skin? No. Are they different? No. Are they exactly the same? No. Are they connected? Yes. How about when you're looking at blood vessels in skin? Are blood vessels skin? No. Are they part of skin? Yes. So what's skin? A concept. Okay. Planet Earth? That's pretty real, isn't it? It's pretty real. We can do the same thing, and, and very quickly you'll go, oh my gosh, this is a figment. It's a figment. Figment of human consciousness that builds up pictures. For instance, it's very simple. I think I've shown you this, many, maybe all of you before. But right now you have a feeling that you're, some of you, not all of you, are looking towards myself, yes? Do you, do you, do you see my whole body? It's pretty easy. Don't think this is a Zen question or anything. You know? But do you see my whole body? It's pretty easy, isn't it? Or what, what part? Do you see like this much? This much? And back there? Pretty easy, isn't it? No, you don't. You see that much. That's what you're looking at right now. That's how much. Postage stamp. Where's the rest coming from? Just memory maps. But it feels very real, doesn't it? Feels very real. Because we're constructed that way. Meditation, insight, not, not, not so much samatha, but insight meditation is designed to break through the thick, sticky illusion to come to the freedom that happens when it collapses. That's all. It just must collapse. And they go, but I don't want it to collapse. Well, then you're not ready for insight meditation. Not real insight meditation. But no, no, but I want to keep it the way it is. Not ready, not enough love. He says, that's odd, eh? Not enough love for insight, for wisdom. It'd be the same thing as, I'm very comfortable on land, but I'm not comfortable on a coral reef. No, thank you. I like it in Toronto, but don't, please, I really don't want to go to Malaysia. Or I don't really want to go to um, Botswana. I hear they have snakes there. They have other things too. They have beautiful baskets in Botswana. They have really nice people. But how would you ever know if you don't go and travel? You have your fiction. So one fiction is bigger than another fiction, is bigger than another fiction, until you have a huge mass of balls of fiction, which is what you carry around as your womb from day to day to day to day, operating in a bubble, like a parrotfish bubble at night, thinking that's your universe, until it gets pricked. And when it gets pricked, it's a very uncomfortable feeling, isn't that right? When it's pricked. When the universe as you know it is pricked, it hurts. But what is it? 
somebody's pricking an illusory bubble. So that's what you have to do in, in insight meditation, is get to see that that pricking is simply a figment of mental construction. Again and again and again and again and again. No one's being hurt. No one's emotionally distraught. Nobody's actually irritated. When there's a sandfly bite and, it, and it's scratchy and irritated, no one's at home. That doesn't mean you don't scratch. It doesn't mean you don't feel it. No one's at home. Nobody is actually uh, there to feel it. It's a mental construct. Okay? So illusion, why give all these examples of illusion, including the illusoriness of deity yoga practice, of, med, of guru yoga practice, is because that's actually the way it is. It takes you there fast. It just draws you right there fast. But sometimes, or more, I'll say more often than not, in the majority of cases, 98%, how's that? You need another being to point out what you're looking at. You could be staring illusoriness in the face and still not get it again and again and again unless somebody directs you to it or you, or you hear teachings on it. The mind simply won't snap into it unless it's had a lot of training somewhere. It just doesn't want to see it. I, today I was, I was hovering on the reef, snorkeling, and I just took after I saw a, um, an octopus go by. I couldn't find it after this point. I was going, it's there. I couldn't find it. It's, it went right into, underneath rocks. So. But then I was looking, and I, all kinds of things look like fish and things. But they're not necessarily what you think it is. And I'm just, just, just laying out over the reef going, how much is it that I can't see? How many fish and organisms am I looking at right now? And I do not have the recognition ability to see them. And I was enjoying that. I was actually really enjoying that. So wonderful. Uh, Jamie emailed me uh, some ads from Colgate toothpaste ads recently. And one of them is, you know, what are you seeing in the ad? And there's a lovely one of a very smiling, beautiful lady uh, putting her arm around a man who's got something in his teeth because they're selling dental floss. And what you don't notice is she's got six fingers. There's another one that you don't notice at all, and he's got his ear missing. I don't want to tell you about the next one, but anyway, anyways. So this is, this is how you're staring at the coral reef, and unless somebody pointed out, you would simply not see the scorpion fish or the lizard fish or maybe even not even an angel fish or a trumpet fish. It's right there looking right at you, and you can't see it. In the same way that awareness is staring right at you all day long. It's your very nature, but it must be pointed out. There are occasionally people, one in a million, maybe one in a hundred to ten million, that suddenly wake up to it. They go, oh my God. Hmm? They do. But rarely can they ever teach how you get there. Rarely. This is, this is, these are called Pracheka Buddhas, technically, and it's very hard for them to teach after that because they don't have a, um, a path that they've trodden, developed, that handles the, the um, gradual development 
this is what's called, it's not even sudden, but a sudden awakening doesn't necessarily allow uh, for the creative uh, teaching of different beings that require different capacities over 1, 2, 3, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years of development to come, come to the same thing. But they get the illusion. It's like that. Boom. You had a question there. Long gone. No, I, I just, I just hope it's not prestigious. It's um, if a lot of this we are illusion, everything is an illusion. Then did the Buddha ever talk about why we're here? <laughs> why not we, but this? Yes, but he said, you know, don't dwell on it because trying to find ultimate causes means you're going to ask what's the origin of the universe. And we leave that for, for cosmologists to do. They're, they're employed to do that. And it's great. It's, it's fun. It's interesting. But it's an endless occupation. It won't liberate you. But the, the, the way to understand, the way it's been explained classically, it's quite simple, is thought patterns lead to activities and more activities, you act on those activities and through countless um, uh, eons, uh, millions and millions and millions of years, the uh, construction of form creates a very thick patterning which one believes to be real. And that's actually quite simple, straightforward, if you think about it, is we have very complex cognitive systems which allow us to do all sorts of creative things, but hide uh, 95 or 98 percent of all uh, cognitive systems behind the screen. Do, do you know what I mean? In other words, when we're in the theater, it really bugs you if you see the movie projector and the dust motes, and you know about the disc playing, and you know all these kinds of things. And you, and you know it's only 30 frames or, or 24 frames. 25 frames, 24 frames per second, right? If you know all that, and you can see the shadow of the boom in the, in the movie and all these kinds of things, it kind of messes up. But that's actually what happens to us all day, except that our cognitive systems have been designed to cover that over. It actually makes it more efficient to do things. But it doesn't liberate us. So think of the, the overwhelming number of years that you've ta told yourself the same story and what that does. But you forget that of how many times you've told yourself the same story and now it feels very, very real. Like someone who says, I'm just too thin. But you're not thin. No, I am too thin. I don't feel good about how thin I am. Or sorry, how, or how, how much weight I have. So you, you stop eating or how thin I am, or how thick I am, or whatever it is. These body image difficulties are very hard. Why? Because it doesn't matter what anybody says, that's how you feel. And then you start telling yourself a story, and within six months or a year, it's a very believable story that sounds out very believable feelings and very believable sensations, and the map is done. It's very easy. Very easy. It's better also for socialization and, and reproduction and economics not to see the boom in the movie, not to see the matrix. So it's well covered over.
But actually, it falls apart all the time. If you're an aware being, you see it fall apart all the time. It just falls apart. All these discrepancies in the matrix, marvelous movie that way. They just keep busting over, keep busting up. You look out and you say, oh, there's a, there's a, a pelican. And you look out again, it's just a branch. Or you look out at shimmering water and you go, oh, there's a boat coming in. And later, there was no boat. Or you, you see somebody walking down the street and you go, oh, that's, uh, that's Cynthia. And then you, you go up to them. Have you ever had that? You go up to them. Hello, Cynthia. It's not Cynthia. It was only Cynthia's, looked like Cynthia's hair. Whole constructed vision of Cynthia. What are you seeing? You don't actually hear me. You're not seeing this being talking to you. And each one of you is imagining a different talk right now. It's not a bad thing. Just learn that's how it works. Get used to it. But you have to see it, not pretend. You have to see it. See it. And that takes mindfulness. It takes very, very sharp mindfulness to catch uh, discrepancies all day long until you go, this is the way it is. Just the way it is. Yes. It certainly shows up in the gross discrepancies, like pelican being a branch. Can it get much finer? Oh, finer, 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 and finer, and finer, and finer. It needs to be continuous. Mm-hmm. All the way along. Well, right now you're having a body experience, yes? Reflect on it, and you'll find out that there is nothing much you're experiencing. Simple. What, what's the sound that you're hearing right now? It's a fan. How silly is that? Are you hearing a fan or are you hearing sounds? Where's the fan? Are you seeing a fan? So everything is done like that. Names. Names upon names upon names. And it starts very young because people tell you, that's a fan. Those are people. That's your mother, that's your father, you repeat it over and over and over again, and the whole world is embedded by names and concepts. That's how we train children. It's okay. We need to do that, otherwise they don't function very well in our society. But it, it, you forget that's how your world was built up. In the same way that someone can go diving or snorkeling, and if they're in a bad mood, it's a bad reef. It's a, it's, it's a bad experience. Good mood is a good experience. There's no reef there. There's no real reef there. There is your mind interpreting the reef. However your mind is, is how the reef looks to your mind. Put on a blue filter, looks very blue. Put on a red filter, right? The colors are enhanced. How about the reef when you go diving deeper and deeper? The colors change. Which one's the real reef? So you, the mindfulness must get so sharp, and you train in all kinds of different ways, but it must get sharp to know where do thoughts come from. Because you say, my thoughts are my enemy. If I just shut up, I'd feel so good. Hmm? That's the standard one in the spiritual, spiritual world. But now you've made enemy of thoughts. What's wrong with thoughts? Are thoughts in any way bad? Do they, do they harm you? Oh, yes, they do. Someone told me that I'm bad. That harmed me. 
So, so it goes deeper and de- no, it doesn't, never harms you. You can have 10 people, five of them get told that they're very bad people and they're just bruised, right? And, f- and, and five of them go, that's nice. Thank you. A lovely compliment. And walk on. Which one's real? Do your thoughts harm you or does the belief that thoughts are real harm you? Do emotions ever hurt you? No. The belief that emotion is something real to cling to hurts you. So this illusion goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until everything is seen as illusory. You say, well, what fun would that be? Oh, it's beautifully fun because it's free. Now, all form becomes joyous. All activities can be for liberation as opposed to being stuck. You know, like with a, um, an animal clamp, like a, uh, what do they call it? A clamp around your leg, a trap, a uh, leg hold trap, moving around with a leg hold trap. The freedom is you can move through the world exploring, loving, creatively helping beings, doing things that are acts of compassion as opposed to leg hole traps. I mean, I get a vision, if you want an illusory vision, but I get a vision of many, many millions of people, maybe billions, going around all day long and laying out leg hole traps for themselves and other people and calling that life. And saying it's real, you know. My suffering is real. My life is real, and you should respect it. And you should give it a lot more credence than you do, Raphael. You should be serious about my life, about my leg hold trap that was mentally created. That's the reality of the suffering. That's the relative reality of suffering. Laying out leg hold traps all day long for you to clamp yourself in and other people. So you want to know where it all comes from? One leg hold trap causes a resultant for another person's harm. And then they create more harm. And it keeps, like waves, compounding, compounding. Every once in a while it settles and then compounds. And eventually you build up structures that are very believable. It's really straightforward. So... The uh, settling of the mind, the uh, settling of what's called the ground, all-ground conscious, the alaya consciousness, the settling of that is not sufficient for liberation. You must purify the ground. Because what's going to happen is the fish will keep jumping out of the water. And you go, <gasps> there's, another, <gasps> there's another fish. So you have to purify way, way, way down into the deep structures of your being to liberate them. Otherwise, there will be whales and sharks ready to nab you uh, of conditioning. And it's not even necessarily yours. It's, it's human nature. Human, human, con- human. Being a human uh, means you're, you have a storehouse of human qualities, human conditioning. Not even your own. You must, you have responsibility for um, uh, purifying that by letting it self-unravel. That's what liberation's about, self-unraveling, letting it unwind. It wants to unwind, why not let it unwind? Any other questions you might have? 
There's some very basic principles about liberation that are important to, to hear deeply. Be still and let the uh, wisdom consciousness unwind you, point you in the right direction, and get help from somebody who's wiser than you, and then carry on, back and forth, back and forth. Yes? Early on yesterday, you said how to build merit. First thought came to me is, I used to get demerits in high school. <laughs> the first thought that came to me was generosity. I don't know. Generosity. You might have been getting demerits in, in school because you were doing things that were actually quite meritorious. You might have been interested in something a teacher wasn't, so they gave you a demerit point. Or you were running around because you were enjoying yourself. That's joy. Demerit. Not learning the way we would like you to learn. Demerit. Not paying attention to the right moment. Demerit. Being tired. Demerit. Not answering the right question. Demerit. Not learning by rote. Demerit. <laughs> All kinds of different learning styles, right? Demerit. Demerit. We're training you how to think and how to learn and how to name objects and fill your universe with concepts. Demerit points if you don't succeed. But merit for the strength of liberation is a very different kind. It's the strength of character that allows you to have the energy and the guts and the gumption and the perspicacity, I love these words, you know, these old-fashioned words, perspicacity, the, the, um, the wherewithal to be strong enough to find your way to the heart of the matter. You, you, we all know that when the going gets rough, what do we do? We pull out our visa card and we leave. We, we, we exit stage right. Isn't that right? We, we all do this. We're, we now have a, a marvelous tool, which is the Visa card or the MasterCard or the American Express, which allows us, uh, when things get difficult, we get on a plane, we get on a train, we get in a cab, we go somewhere to shift. But, but um, we may not have enough strength to stay with it, with patience, with generosity. You have to build it. You have to build it. Here's a project. You want some patience? Well, it's a good project, but it's not quite ultimate. But, but take something like a, you know, remember the old-fashioned, they're expensive now, but the old-fashioned balsa wood models of sailing ships or fighter planes or, you know, this sort of thing. And you lay them all out and you, you, you cut them out and you have to sand them and then glue them and this sort of thing. Months, you can be out of months. Then the rigging, you know, of the old sailing ships. I think a good test for students is, can you start at the beginning and finish it? But I'm not interested. So what? Or a big complicated jigsaw puzzle. A few of them. Things that you do that require patience and testing and craft, can you get to the end? Or do you give up in frustration because there's always something more interesting? Now that's, that's actually kind of a low level, but that is there. Can you be generous to yourself by educating and feeding yourself? Uh, how much strength do you have? That's good. Someone once told me one of the best meditations they ever did 
was, was, was it seven, eight days in a lab looking in a microscope and counting cells from morning to night, identifying one cell morning to night, looking for it, right? Mm-hmm. And they said that was amazing because after a while they got really calm, really open, really spacious. It wasn't for them. They let go into it and they didn't want to go home at 11 o'clock at night after starting at 8.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning, after a croissant and coffee, of course. At the Hummingbird, was it Hummingbird Cafe? Yes, yeah, it was a Hummingbird Cafe. That's where we'd start in the morning. And didn't want to get off. They said, hey, you know, it's 11 o'clock, we've got to be back in the morning. I don't want to leave. What are you doing? I'm, I think I got another one here. I think I got another one here. This, this is good. It's not for you, it's for somebody else. Crafting for somebody else, constructing something for somebody else. But even better is uh, serving the Dharma. Patience, generosity, uh, serving the Dharma. Why? Because it directly leads to people unfolding. It leads to people liberating. This is a higher, a higher generosity. Crafts are good, wonderful, but not as deeply liberating as generosity in service of Dharma. This is a higher, higher, higher work. So, again, generosity, great generosity, great ethics, great patience, great energy, and great concentration. These are the great strengths. Patience is is more than what we normally call patience. It's the ability to stay with something for long periods of time and be interested. Staying power. Do you have staying power? Can you stick with it for a long period of time until it becomes really, really uh, deep, deep study? And many people, they don't. They say, you know, I've been meditating, but I, uh, I can't finish that 100,000. I'm at, a, I'm at a, uh, I need to, yeah, right, you told me to do a million. I'm at 750,000, but I, it's, just, it's just not for me. That's classic. I can't do it. I can't get to a million. You're at 900,000. I just can't do it. I'm gonna give, I've got to give up. It's just hopeless. What's the reason for doing a million? I don't know. Let's do a million. What? You just wanted me to do a million? Yeah, just do a million. That's good, you know, because that's like, do you have trust in your teacher when the teacher says, eh, go do 600,000, go do a million? And the teacher says, so now you finish that. And they say, well, what did I get out of that? I don't know. It's whatever. You completed something. That's actually strength. That's just strength. Sometimes they say, we just complete the number. Oh, but I, I'm not doing every mantra perfectly. I don't care. The first step is to finish the 100,000 because you've never done 100,000 in your life. And then when they do the 100,000, that wasn't so hard. Oh, good, now you're going to do a million. So numbers are good. Numbers actually sometimes indicate strength. How many pagodas have you built? I remember someone told me, the Dalai Lama asked them, because they were asking a very technical, deep question about meditation, tantric question. And the first thing the Dalai Lama said is, how many three-year retreats have you done to judge whether I'm going to even, even answer that question? How many, th- how many three, not just one, how many three-year retreats? Three, four, five, are you qualified? To even, you know, take the time to answer a question like that would be meaningless. 
Patience. Generosity yourself. How much generosity have you given yourself? These are, these are, these are great strengths. These are tremendous strengths to build character. So when you're sitting there in meditation or standing there in front of you, nothing but you, again the same formations, utter boredom, dullness, anxiety, the same one over and over and over again. It's been a month now. <laughs> or three weeks or a month. And, you know, of course, you get bliss in between, of course. You get bliss, you get fun, it's beautiful, it's glory. But, no, once again, there it is. Are you going to stay with it and look at it for what it is, or are you going to run and make up a daydream? Or are you going to, oh, time to make up tea, you know. A good time to make some bread. It's a wonderful time to go for a walk. You see? How much, how much strength do you have to bore into that feeling of utter boredom to come out the other end, which is the clear light radiance of the mind, staring in the face? Mindfulness. So mindfulness rests on, on merit. It's much more than bare attention. Mindfulness rests on strength to be in there with the study and not just bare attentive. I'm going to do this because I was told I get something for it. Yeah. If I, if I have bare attention, lots of mindfulness, I'm going to get myself some enlightenment. No, you're going to get yourself some bare attention and more of it. But you're not necessarily going to get enlightenment. There must be something behind it profoundly deep questing interest intent to liberate to see what liberation is otherwise it doesn't pop up you might have to spend uh, hours at the same place in the reef to see what's going on even when you're cold you just may not see it I think this is common sense, isn't it? Most of Dharma is very, well, not all of it. Some of it is beyond common sense because it's extraordinary. But this is common sense. Not common sense today, but it's common sense. I know, it's old-fashioned. It's about 30 years old. It's very old-fashioned. It is, isn't it? It's old-fashioned. So we come to the test of my beloved guru, how much money you got. Just shows, do you have the strength? Do you want to study? I got 10 bucks. Good, get out of here. You, have, you don't have the power to study. I got 10 bucks. Hey, teacher, can you give me a thou? Lend me a thou. It's not strength. So if you understand that, I hope it leads you to do uh, explorations that require, that, that develop merit. Now, I mentioned yesterday that I was going to speak about things that produce extraordinary merit. So how do we get that extraordinary merit, that oomph, that allows our mind to be steadily, pristinely interested to go and look at the nature of mind? or be able to handle the, um, the glory, the, uh, the complexity, the, the um, stability required 
to meditate on one's body as a yidam, as a as a as a deity, as a as a as a being of light. And for that, we have uh, in the tradition of tantra, there are extraordinary foundation practices. You see, so there are practices that are not easy practices cognitively that tune up. So even if you have good merit, uh, there are practices that tune up the merit even better, like tuning fork, to get it at a, to a place uh, that's serviceable for being able to um, really uh, be with uh, the study of the nature of mind. That's good. Those are called the extraordinary foundation practices. And one does that when one enters into a tradition, a tantric tradition, uh, that um, one is uh, dedicated and serious about, because one needs extra tuning. Okay. Now I wanted to read you uh, today a um, an extraordinary poem by Nashal Ken Rinpoche. Now, the Ken Rinpoche, well, actually both brothers, but are very famous as great Zogchen masters. And uh, I believe they, they both passed away um, in the 90s or, or late 80s. I think, I think the 90s, maybe even more recently than that. I never had the, um, the great blessing to uh, meet them. But actually, one day, both brothers, both Ken Rinpoches, very, very famous, uh, went to uh, visit Namjo Rinpoche in, at his house in Ontario. They came to visit. And after a short uh, visit uh, with Rinpoche, uh, they were the ones that, if you want to know where the, the, where the origin of the story, they were the ones that declared uh, Namjo Rinpoche an emanation of white manjusri, so, as was Mipham Lama. So that's, the connect, that's partly the connection. Uh, just let you know. But uh, he has this very, very short, beautiful poem or song called The Mirror of Mindfulness. And I, I enjoy reading this out because he um, obviously is a man that uh, didn't um, waste words. Fantastic master of insight. So a poem by Nashal Ken Rinpoche. Homage to the king of self-existing mindfulness. I'll, I'll read these three times. Homage to the king of self-existing mindfulness. Look here, all Vajra friends. Look here, all Vajra friends. That means look here, all students. Look here, all teachers. All my dear um, friends that are engaged in the Vajra path, the diamond path. I am the Vajra of mindfulness. When seeing me, be mindful. I am the Vajra. I am the diamond adamantine state of mindfulness. When seeing me, be mindful. When you're beholding the clear state, be mindful. He's also saying, he is, not just because he's a guru, but all beings are endowed with pristine awareness. I am the Vajra of mindfulness. You'll find the clear adamantine nature of mindfulness nowhere else but yourself. If you can't see it in the teacher, look towards yourself. Traditionally, both. Look into the essence of the immovable mind. This is all pith instruction. Each word is vital. Look into the essence of the immovable mind. Immovable mind. Go find it. 
I am the mirror of mindfulness, clearly showing your mindful attention. Your consciousness shows your mindful attention. The guru, the lama, shows mindful attention. Your mind, which is the same nature, not the personality, the mind, has the same quality. Look, and that's where you'll see this mindfulness, this sheer, unobstructed mindfulness. <coughs> Nothing's going to show you mindfulness but your mind. You don't need to look anywhere else. There's only one place you could look, is your mind, right? <coughs> is there anywhere else? <coughs> you, you have to resolve this, by the way, because much of life much of life is spent unresolved <coughs> about where you find it. I don't know if you know this. It's called refuge. It's called ultimate refuge. You, normally you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, but ultimate refuge is in Buddha nature. Where do you find ultimate refuge? People spend their lives looking anywhere but the mind. You know this, yes? Everything is a refuge but the mind. And it's right there. It's something you've got from morning till night. It doesn't ever go away. It's immovable. It's a non-moving target. Your thoughts are moving targets. Your emotions are moving targets. Stephanie, your, your uh, sensations are moving targets. All over your body. Moving targets are hard to pin down. Mind is immovable. When you wake up at night, you have mind. When you go to sleep at night, you have mind. When you're unconscious, you have mind. When you're in deep sleep, you have mind. When you're in light sleep, you have mind. When you're in deep sleep, you have mind. When you have no thoughts, you have mind. When you have thoughts, you have mind. When you daydream, you have mind. When you're snorkeling over the coral reef, you have mind. There's never a moment that you don't have mind. So there's nowhere else you're going to find what? Pristine awareness, freedom. That's what he's saying. Okay. Mindfulness is the root of Dharma. It's the root of Dharma. Why? It's your mind. Mindfulness is the main part of the practice. The main part. Ignore mindfulness to your peril. If you want to be a Dharma practitioner, you want to be a meditator, ignore it to your peril. Need a high degree, a highly tuned degree of mindfulness. You have to do it. It's not bad, by the way, it's glory. It's your own mind. Mindfulness is your own mind in its natural, pristine state. It's perfectly mindful and aware. But you have to come to trust that. Okay, let's go back to what he's saying here. Mindfulness, quote, mindfulness is the stronghold of the mind. Do you know a stronghold? What's a stronghold mean? I like this. These, these iPads are great. Watch. It's great. Watch. Stronghold. A place that has been fortified so as to protect it against attack. Cool, eh? So it's a lovely choice of words by the translator. Mindfulness is the great protection of the mind. It's a treasury of the mind. 
It's where all the strength is to be found. You don't find strength outside the mind. You know you could be a billionaire and be the weakest person in the world. Right? You could be sitting on rubies, emeralds, diamonds, quin uh, quinzite, tanzanite, pink tanzanite, pink-green tanzanite, blue tanzanite, all kinds of rare tanzanites. Wealthy beyond, potentially wealthy, and be a cripple, a mental cripple. So that's not your stronghold. You could have five or six homes around the world. The freedom to travel, it's not your stronghold. Where's your stronghold? Only place to find your stronghold is your mind. I like this poem a lot. It's supremely beautiful. Mindfulness is the aid to spontaneously aware wisdom. You won't find the spontaneous... By the way, he's pointing out, if you notice what he's doing in a beautiful Dharma poem, he's giving you all the qualities of this mind. He's actually pointing out to you what to look for. These are, these are poems of realization. By, by putting, couching in these terms, you actually go, aha, I can look for these qualities. These are the qualities you're going to find. Mindfulness is the aid to spontaneously aware wisdom. Mind is spontaneous. Everything comes out of it. Everything goes back into it. It can move within a millisecond, actually a fraction millisecond. It can go anywhere. Right now, you could think of being on Jupiter, and you are on Jupiter. Right now, we could say, you know what? I think tomorrow we'll, we'll leave Caius Cochinos. Gone. How about going snorkeling right now? Sure. Boom. Anything is possible, right? With mind, an infinitude of possibilities. Anytime. Only the neurotic mind goes, I can't. I shouldn't. And I won't be able to. But the, the free mind, the great stronghold of the treasury, can go, we could do anything, as long as it's ethical. As long as it's ethical and doesn't harm, imagine what's possible. Do you believe that people will one day be able to walk into a booth and go across the solar system in a, in a, in a second, a flash? Highly likely. Do you believe that 80 years ago or 60 years ago people actually could conceive of cell phones this big? No. People saying there's no way we can ever go to the moon, let alone Mars, that we can send satellites that can take absolutely beautiful, amazing pictures on the other end of the solar system and send back messages and send that and receive that? That we can have rovers traveling around Mars, sniffing, digging, doing chemical experiments, biological experiments. That we can actually send a submersible down to the deepest parts of the ocean and take pictures and, and do research. How about this one? That someone can sit or stand and be thought-free, blissfully clear, hour after hour after hour for days? 
people even today will tell you it's not possible, even though all kinds of people do it all the time. They'll still it's not possible. It's not possible. I can't do it. It's not possible. Isn't that amazing? And he says, without mindfulness, one is carried away by laziness. Laziness sweeps one away without mindfulness. With mindfulness, the laziness just evaporates. Why? Because you're interested. You're there. You're engaged. Take someone who's going, you know, I don't really feel like going snorkeling today. I don't really feel like going diving today. And then you get over the, over the board, you know, in the, into, the, into the reef and go, Wow! Wow, this is really cool. Engaged. Engaged. Antidote for laziness? Be mindful. It vanishes instantly. Instantly. You have tons of energy. When you're mindful, you have tons and tons of energy. A lack of mindfulness is the creator of all faults. When you stray from mindfulness, that is how uh, unethic, unethical behavior, uh, a misstep, uh, crashing your head into a wall, uh, walking under um, something and um, being hit, all, all kinds of things. We all do it. Uh, one little misstep, you know, in a city could get you killed walking off a curb, correct? One little misstep. And there's places in the United States which have a very high rate of that because of the, the traffic way it's designed. A, ho- a very high rate of injury and death of a certain intersection. Do you know what it takes to actually walk off a curb and not get killed? It's quite amazing. Or not run over people with a car? Or smash into cars? How long does it take to get killed or kill other people on a freeway moving at uh, 100 kilometers an hour. What's it like? Can you snap your finger and go, it's all over? (coughs) That's it. Just go like this. Car gets flung, you get flung. The next thing you know is you have a smash up of five or six cars, and it's all over. Life has changed substantially. So faults, from ideas to misunderstandings to verbal diarrhea to confused understanding between two people to bad dialogues to writing things that are inappropriate. This is what he means by faults. Ideas that are poisonous. Ideas that don't go anywhere. Dull ideas. Things that lack good life quality. Faults. So it's not just stubbing your toe. That happens. Not just stubbing your toe. That's practice. It's verbal. It's what you write. It's what you think. It's, it's your whole being engaged in mindfulness, watching it. And not watching it because it's bad, it's hard. Just watching it because you're engaged in doing what's good. Doing what, engage what's doing what's liberating. Let's move on. Now, a quote again. A lack of mindfulness doesn't accomplish any purpose. He's saying, basically, if you don't have mindfulness, you really aren't accomplishing anything. You're not going anywhere. Mindfulness 
is a tremendous power. It's a, it's a factor within the fifth parami of concentration that will take you to wisdom. If you don't have it, you're, you're treading water in life. Quote, A lack of mindfulness is like a heap of excrement. That's a polite way of saying, if you're not mindfulness, it's a heap of what? Shit. It stinks. It stinks. Why? It stinks up lives. It stinks, it harms. Hmm? To lack mindfulness is to sleep in an ocean of urine. I love this. So direct. To lack mindfulness is to sleep in an ocean of urine. What's that like? To sleep in an ocean of urine. Bathed in urine. Not a pleasant uh, thought, is it? No. He's going like this, basically. Those that are mindful, it's like this. Remember I said people smell? Different smells? Some people literally smell like this. Why? Their ethics is off. Their thoughts are bad. Their biochemistry is a mess. They don't have generosity. They don't have patience. They're doing you in. They're doing themselves in. They stink. You should learn to smell it. Learn to smell it. People do business deals sometimes. They should smell that it's bad. It's a bad business deal. Not because the, the accounting's wrong. Not because it doesn't add up to a good profit. It stinks. Somewhere, it stinks. Why? The beings stink. This is what he means. They're in a pile of urine. They're not mindful. Ethically mindful. And then he says, quote, to lack mindfulness is to be like a heartless corpse. This is great. I love it. A heartless corpse. There is no heart. When you have mindfulness, real mindfulness, mindfulness with generosity, mindfulness with ethics, mindfulness with patience, mindfulness with energy, mindfulness with concentration, and mindfulness with wisdom, because he's talking about wisdom, you have a great heart. You love. You spontaneously love. Without mindfulness, you will not love. You will practice love. You will practice loving kindness, but you won't love, spontaneously love, effortlessly love. You'll be heartless, like a corpse. You may as well be dead. This is a marvelous teaching. He's being very strong. It's good. Then he says, friends, please be mindful. And then, quote, through the aspiration of the Supreme Guru, may all friends attain firm mindfulness. These words urging, this is a colophon, this is the ending uh, statement, the wrap-up, the colophon. These words urging one to be mindful were composed by the stupid buck-toothed ox, the bad monk, Jamyang Dorje, and offered to his Vajra friends, may it be virtuous. You know, he has, uh, if you ever look at pictures of Cam Rinpoche, he's a buck-tooth guy. So this is a way of poking fun at himself, which is a classic Tibetan um, put-down um, of, uh, of, of, uh, of himself as, as, a, as a brilliant master. Humility. Isn't that a lovely poem? So uh, don't take it so negatively. Realize that he's every line he's pointing out your freedom. He's showing you where you meditate. 
this is what it's like. This is actually what it's like to have mindfulness. This is what it's like not to have mindfulness. It's extremely clear. Probably written within about three or four minutes. Boom. Clear as a bell. Oh, I can go on and on. Now, to come back to this, because it's so important today, um, I'm going to read another um, paragraph or two written by Mipham Rinpoche, last century, from a, uh, a writing, a short writing, called The Lamp That Dispels Darkness. And uh, this is, I think this actually might be an excerpt. I'll have to look it up, because I've read this before, an excerpt. Uh, from a teaching uh, to um, village, village yogis, village what's called nagpas, uh, yogi, uh, they can be married, they can have uh, consorts. They're they're not monastic, but they're um, they do prayers for people, they um, do chants and so on. But he's saying, hey, village nagpas, you have every opportunity to be enlightened. Here's how. It's a beautiful book, by the way, a little thin little book, beautiful beautiful book for villagers that aren't professional um, uh, monastics. And he says, an ordinary town yogi can, with minor hardship, that's you, by the way, that's you, you're all yogis, an ordinary town yogi can, with minor hardship, arrive at the Vidyadhara level. The Vidyadhara is, is um, supremely uh, awakened, uh, conquering uh, being. This is the power of the profound path. Then he says, with your attention, when your attention is allowed to settle naturally, not, not forced into settling, but allowed to settle naturally, like after a big windstorm or a big rain, calm, the, the um, trumpet, trumpet, not trumpet, but trumpet bay is calm like a mirror. When your attention is allowed to settle naturally, like the wind dies down, without thinking of anything, and you maintain constant mindfulness in that state, you experience a neutral and indifferent state of mind that is vacant and blank. Vacant and blank. As long as insight of decisive knowing is not present, this is exactly what masters called unknowing. It's a state of ignorance. It's nice. You know how nice it is when the, the ocean is settled flat, the sun is out, you go. Isn't that nice? You just sit on the, on the, on the chair. Wow. Doesn't that feel good? Beautiful. Right? The sun comes out, everything's settled. No care in the world. There's no pouring rain like this morning. Wasn't that something? Wasn't that something, eh? I don't know if you... I'm, I'm going to digress for a sec, but, you know, I, this, this changed something for me. I read this, and it changed something profoundly. You know when, I think it was two years ago, that London, uh, England and Europe was being drenched for weeks in water? Remember that? You were around for that, yes? Drenched. Drenched during the summertime, right? Drenched. Well, someone did a calculation of the amount of moisture, water, in these streams of moisture, like currents, the river, they're called rivers in the atmosphere. And it was something like, I don't know, 
the volume of water hanging over Europe and dumping like, like the Amazon River into Europe was more, I think, I believe it was something like, it was at least one Amazon River. It felt like it. It felt like it. But... Uh, I, I, it might have been something like 10 or 3 Amazon rivers full of water in the jet stream just going like that. So we, we rarely, we don't think of clouds or moisture as a river, but actually is a river moving overhead and under the right conditions the river goes like this. And it certainly felt this morning like that. Like the whole river was being upturned instead of it just flowing along. It went boom. Like that. And so I just want to share that with you. So think about clouds or moisture, uh, moisture rivers uh, flowing along. They're carrying enormous rivers of moisture that under the right circumstances can just go doom, like that. It's pretty cool. I just, I just I like that, yeah. It seems to me that sitting in the sun and enjoying being blankly present is still a kind of sati. It's still, you might be present. You might be present, but you're, there's unknowing. Mm. There's no knowing. I guess if I want to say it's like, sometimes sati isn't obviously freedom. It's not That's correct. It's free, it's just... That's what I've been pointing at. This is why I'm repeating myself a hundred times. Sati alone is not sufficient for freedom. It feels great. It can feel wonderful. It's not sufficient for freedom. You have to have knowing. You have to have insight. Bare attention is not sufficient. Being relaxed and open and vacant is not sufficient for liberation. It's not liberation. It's mistaking, it's mistaking not knowing what awareness is. So let's continue. I'll read that again. You experience a neutral and indifferent state of mind that is vacant and blank. As long as insight of decisive knowing, decisive knowing, Decisive, straight through, is not present. This is exactly what masters called unknowing, ma rigpa in Tibetan. You cannot define it with phrases like, it is like this, or this is it. So such a state of mind is also called undecided. It's an undecided state. It doesn't have decisive quality. It's a wishy-washy. How are you doing? Oh, really good. Just imagine, you're sitting on a chair. Sunny, it's bright. It's all calm. How are you doing? Good. Lovely, in fact. There's not a decisive quality about it that cuts to the heart of what mind is. Doesn't doesn't really do anything, but it does. It is important because it makes you feel good. You're in a good state. And unable to say where you remain or what you are thinking of, the state is labeled common indifference. It's called, in, in the southern schools, it's called upeka, but the neutral, un, unwholesome upeka. It's an upeka, it's a, it's a quality of evenness that just doesn't go anywhere. There's no oomph to it. In fact, you have slipped into the ordinary common state of the all-ground, of the, of the alaya consciousness, the base of, of consciousness. You've slipped into that. It's great but it's full of all kinds of seeds, of karmic, uh, intentional seeds that haven't been purified. Non-conceptual, carries on, Pam Lama carries on, next paragraph, non-conceptual wakefulness should be developed. 
through this method of settling. So he's saying, you must develop this. You must be able to sit or stand and have a relaxed, settled mind that's vacant. There's nothing at home. I'm looking at you, but there's nobody home. You need that relaxed mind as your basis. Yes. Is that also the basis of the, the uncoiling that you talked about earlier? Yes. Yes. Natu he says, he uses the word naturally settling, not force settling. At the beginning, you practice meditation, you force settle. Eventually, you get the instructions and you let it uncoil, and it just opens. It just settles. Just settles. Just like an unwinding coil. Boop! Done. Non-conceptual wakefulness should be developed through this method of settling. However, as it lacks a wakefulness that knows your own nature, you don't know your own face. You don't know what mind is. It's not decisive. It is not the main meditation training. Do you understand? It's not the main. It's not the central meditation training. It's a side training you need, but don't mistake it as the goal. Too many people are telling me, I've sat in a vacant state now for years. What do I do now? Don't get like that. Too many. Too many. It is not the main meditation training. This is what the aspiration of Samatabhadra says, quote from a text, the vacant state of, non -think of not thinking anything is itself the cause of ignorance and confusion. It becomes your downfall. The act of not wanting to have thoughts and staying that way is ignorance and confusion. You don't know what mind is. You still don't know what a thought is. It's your enemy. You've now made thoughts your enemy. Speech has become your enemy. Thoughts your enemy. Fantasy is your enemy. Everything's your enemy. Except what? Settled blank mind. Since your mind has experienced this vacant state, which lacks both thought and mental activity, look naturally into the one who notices the state. Awareness. If you're noticing the state and it's blank and you're enjoying it, What's doing the enjoying? Where's the cognition? How could you even know you're in a blank, vacant state of glow? Who knows that? Where's the detector? That detector is your awareness. You see? Look naturally into the one who notices a state, the one who is not thinking. Who's not thinking? What's not thinking? What is behind the not thinking? What's that like? When you do so, there is a thought-free knowing called Rigpa in Tibetan that is totally open, free from inside and outside. No more will you use, the, if you really recognize it, no more will you use this funny term, I'm looking inward, I'm looking outward. I'm in here, I'm out there, my, I'm doing inner meditation, I'm doing outer meditation, all that goes. It is free from inside outside like a clear sky. This knowing is not a duality of that experienced and that experiencing,
but you can resolve that it is your own nature and feel the conviction that it is, quote, it is no other, it is, it is no other than this. He hasn't described it. It's no other than this. What is this? Indescribable. It's nothing other than this. Now try to describe it. Well, at this state, as this state cannot be expressed precisely with concepts or descriptions, once you feel such a conviction, it can appropriately be described as beyond extremes, indescribable, innate luminosity, awareness or knowing, called Rigpa. It's called enlightenment. It's, the, it's called Buddha nature. Recognize it. Then the wakefulness of knowing your nature will dawn, the, obscured, the obscurity of the vacuous state will be cleared, and just as the interior of a house becomes visible with the rising of the sun, you will find certainty in the nature of your mind. What's the nature of your mind? You must come to a place where that becomes your biggest question. Not the vacant state. Not the state free of thoughts. What actually is this nature? Once you recognize it, it's game over. Why? Because it's like a viral infection. It'll keep bringing you back to the essence. Even if you forget for a year, one day you'll just wake up and go, Oh yeah. It'll wake you up. It'll just keep waking you up. Every month, every week, bing. Every year, bing. Remember, I'm freedom. Right. And then forget about it. You will find certainty in the nature of your mind. This is the instruction in breaking open the eggshell of ignorance. Just like that. Meditation, ordinary meditation, is like having an egg and thinking you know what's inside the egg and the taste of egg by looking at a shell of an egg. Isn't that right? It's like saying, I know what a grapefruit is because you've actually touched a grapefruit, smelt a grapefruit, and looked at a grapefruit. What do you know about a grapefruit? Nothing until you penetrate into it and taste its essence. See? So have you tasted your mind? Have you tasted your mind with certainty that you're absolutely confident, not by words, by what freedom is, by what what mind in its spontaneous open state is. That's it. With that realization, you will understand that the basic and timeless presence of such a nature is not formed out of causes and conditions, that it does not change throughout the three times, and that separate from this nature, the existence of some other thing called mind cannot be found. You will not be looking for another mind. You will not be looking for something else you'll be looking, you know where the heart of liberation is found. The existence of some other thing called mind cannot be found, not even so much as an atom. That's called true refuge. You're not fooled anymore. They are my true refuge. This text, this books I have is my true refuge. This study is my true refuge. No, your only true refuge is discerning what 
It is what's the naked state of awareness. There's nowhere else. And you can actually come to this logically. If you just stay with it for like a few hours, okay, where am I going to find the ultimate nature? Where am I going to find the truth? And you keep doing that, you're going to only come to one conclusion, I guarantee it. Your mind. Why? Your mind creates all those questions in the first place. Everything comes out of that. All your experience comes out of this mind. What is it? What is it? That's it. That must be resolved. And once you resolve it, you have to wake it up and wake it up and wake it up and wake it up and allow it to become compassionate. If you don't, you've missed the point. It's naturally compassionate. Thus is what I wanted to say today. So, so uh, little, little, uh, one entire little text and some snippets from some others. Beautiful. Beautiful teachings by very, very uh, enlightened beings. Not just enlightened beings, but very, very enlightened beings. There's no messing around with those minds. That's your mission. Do you, if you wish to accept it, Go for it. It's right before you. It's nowhere else. It's right before you. It's staring you in the face. And that's the only place you'll find your freedom, not anywhere else. But you can use life to do that. As you say, merit. You have to gain merit to do this. So go enjoy life. Go explore life. Gain merit. And take the time to look at mind. That's called retreats and daily life. Come out of a blank state. What is this nature? What am I looking at? But I can't find anything. Exactly. That's called freedom. If you could find something, you're in trouble. Whenever a student says, I found it, I know it's blown. I found it. They found a thing. Now they've grasped it. Now they've grasped to a thing. It's subtle, but it's a thing. I found luminosity thing. I found the ultimate nature thing. I found Buddhahood thing. I found the all ground nature thing. All these words. I found the Dharmakaya. Okay. Better to say, better would be, I tripped over the Dharmakaya and my face landed in it. <laughs> and it's kind of like falling in a puddle. That's more like it. Suddenly I tripped and then, the, then I was in the puddle. Ah, that's the Dharmakaya. It's actually very similar to the experience. Boop, boom. Okay. It's good. I think it's always good to end um, the uh, Dharma talks, a series of Dharma talks where you don't have any questions because you're going. Ooh. I like to raise the bar. You know the expression, raise the bar? This is the bar raised very high. About it, what you have to do. Otherwise, you will end up meditating on the um, side point and not the main essence. It will, I don't want anybody who studies with me, or anybody else for that matter, but anybody who studies with me, to spend years 
practicing the vacant state of meditation, the vacant meditation, what, what some teachers call the stupid meditation. It's not, you don't have to. You simply have to hear it again and again and again is wake it up. Go look for the essence. Okay. I think we should finish there. That's, that's, I think you've hopefully got the point. The sharp end of the, of the purba, of the mind, and go for it. So sit outside, be vacantly lovely, and then look at it. What are you? What are you? What is this awareness? Let it reveal itself. Idante punyakamang asawaki wahangho tu. Idante punyakamang asawaki wahangho tu. Idante punyakamang asawaki wahangho tu. Sabe satasigidhantu. May all beings be well and happy. And may all beings be established in a perfect continuity of freedom. The perfect union of wisdom and compassion. Sarmangalam, sarmangalam, sarmangalam. For all beings, for all beings, for all beings. Many blessings. Good. Before we uh, finish, I'd really like to... Um, um, thank you. Actually, I'd like to. Th- I'd like. I, I, it's a, it's a, a heartfelt thanks from all of life to thank you for uh, coming here, so you can grow. It's not for me. It's all life. I'm just expressing. You know? So you can grow, and you can discover, and you can hear uh, Dharma. It's very good, and um, relax. Uh, learn to do something different in life. This is remarkable. Merit. It's good. And so I, I'd like to thank all of you for um, uh, doing this. You will help all the creatures in the world, maybe even the universe, by doing this. And uh, I'd, I'd really like, again, to uh, thank Laurel, who's put in tremendous time and energy. Uh, you have no idea. Making, making this all happen... Uh, clearing the way, clearing out obstacles. Um, tremendous, tremendous. Thank you, Laurel. Supporting us all. And these two fine um, gentlemen over here who have uh, cooked uh, um, great meals. You experienced one, but we've been so fortunate to be uh, our energies uplifted all the time by uh, lovely, lovely meals and, and uh, good support and so it's been, been uh, tremendous. It's also allowed me uh, to take about, um, I guess, about 21 or 22 gigs of photos in the last uh, two weeks, plus, plus some movies, which I now need to go through and um, sort and catalog and work on. Um, I don't know how many images that is, but it's probably a few thousand images. So um, thank you, and that then allows me to uh, carry on my explorations. It's good. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great pleasure watching you all um, grow. Great. It's also also a great pleasure to uh, always recall um, the great fortune of this being and some others to have uh, met and studied with Namjul Rinpoche, great venerable Namjul Rinpoche, who uh, also spelled out a great wondrous vision 
to incorporate the natural world and uh, natural history in uh, Dharma activities. He told me, I'll share this with you, but he told me when I was in my early 20s, no, when I was 20 years old, and just about to start a retreat, a month-long retreat, uh, I was on a boat, or it was in Norway. And he turned to me, we were going for a walk, he turned to me and says, you know, your awakening will be through taking a microscope and a telescope into retreat. This is how your direction will unfold. Um, and he said, also uh, show others that. So uh, this was when I was about 20 years old. He said, if you really want to know how you're going to awaken and, and what you're going to be showing people, take a microscope and a telescope into retreat. Into retreat. So uh, I, I, I keep uh, unfolding that for you, whether it's with a microscope or a telescope. But you'll notice that the uh, Namjol Sadhana, the Namjol uh, Guru Yoga, he is uh, one of his forms, actually all of his, almost all of his forms except for one. He is uh, sitting or standing, holding a, a, a thigh-bone trumpet, which in the Sadhana he calls a microscope telescope. So there he is in the cave, uh, or standing in the cave of the, of the mysteries, uh, of the skull of mysteries, or the heart, and uh, um, unfolding the dharmas through looking through the telescope of insight. The thigh-bone trumpet is one of the great symbols in Tantra, uh, the hollow thigh-bone trumpet of insight, the hollow uh, body, the hollowed-out thigh. There's nothing in there. Your body is a temple, cathedral of light. So he is using that uh, metaphor to show you that you have to look very, very deeply both at the micro and the macro. Uh, your own coral reef of the mind and the other coral reefs of, nat of nature to come to a great, great liberation. Not just your liberation, but a great liberation for all beings. Tremendous compassion and tremendous um, foresight uh, that that being had. And of course, in his life, he showed that, that he lived that. He, he lived that very much. So um, I thank him very much for such a precious lineage of um, a vision that he has um, um, given us. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm, it's a joy. It's a great, great. Uh, it's a great joy to uh, just keep sharing.